Hi, welcome to Food with Mark Bittman. As always, you can reach out to us at food at markbittman.com. We're happy to hear from you. We'd love to hear any comments you have about the show and we'll happily respond. Please also consider subscribing to our near daily newsletter, The Bitman Project. That's at bitmanproject.com. And of course, subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already and leave us rave reviews. Back in a sec. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I met Kasson Trenner probably 15 years ago when he was at Greenpeace, a warrior trying to prevent fishing piracy at sea. I admired him. Uh, we did a story together for The Times, and we've been friends ever since. We started by talking about fish, of course, and the extractive industry that relies mostly on sucking it out of the sea. We've never stopped. At about the same time, Kin Louie, a sushi chef, recognized that the upswing in the global popularity of sushi was directly threatening the existence of many fish, including one of the kings of the ocean, the bluefin tuna. Eventually, the two would join forces to create what became vegan, that is, fishless sushi dishes, and they created restaurants, several to date. None of this is as incongruous as it sounds. Sushi has always been primarily about rice, not fish. The word sushi itself means soured rice, 
a reference to the vinegar that's used to prepare it. What it does not mean is pieces of fish wrapped with rice. Vegan sushi is not an aberration, but the norm. It's about the rice, not the fish. In this conversation, the three of us, Ken, Cassin, and I, talk about sushi in general, about the threats to our fish supply, about Cassin and Ken's restaurants, about why sushi can be great without fish. There's a lot to unpack here, and it's all pretty interesting. Here we go. Cassin, we met probably 15 years ago. You were at Greenpeace still. I was just starting. I think we met because of the Nobu campaign. And that was my first campaign that I ran there. So this was 2009. Yeah. And that was when I was writing an aquaculture piece, I'm pretty sure, for the Times Opinion section. Yep. So we've stayed friends. And you've gone off into this sort of, you're like a serial non-fish sushi restaurant founder. And now you've done that with Ken, who's with us also. Ken? Yes. I don't quite know where to start. I know we want to talk about what sushi actually is and what it means, which I think is going to be an awesome conversation. But maybe a little history before we get into that would be good. That is, how did you get into this, Cass? And how'd you hook up with Ken? How'd the two of you start working together? You're right. It's an interesting discussion. The, the question is, where do we begin? I guess if, if any place works, it's maybe the way that Ken and I grew up. Because for me, that's why I work in what I work on. It, it really is. I grew up on the beach. I developed a real love, not just for the ocean, but for all the funny little mysteries that come out of it. You know, when I was a little kid, I used to go down to the beach and dig for clams and stuff and bring them home to my mom and she would cook them. And I thought it was the coolest thing in the world you know, for a, a seven-year-old boy to be able to, to bring this stuff back home and, and have it turn into food. Where was this beach? That is kind of great. Washington State. And uh, you may think like, well, the beach is in Washington, not not that great. Yeah, okay, nine, nine months out of the year, you're right. But three months out of the year, they're spectacular. And those were real special times. Summer, as a little kid on the beach in Washington, those were halcyon days. And uh, anyway, fast forward, go off to college, stuff like that. I start coming back. And in the meantime, my town is exploding population with, you know, all the new people moving in for Microsoft and Boeing and everything. And basically because of runoff and population explosion, that little beach starts to die. And I watch it in sort of freeze frame, you know, coming back every summer, coming back every winter from college to the point where I would never eat anything from that beach. Now it's polluted. It's, hmm. it's just dead. And I think that really, that did something to me later in my life. I, I didn't want to work on anything that didn't have to do with, with ocean conservation. But I had also really developed this love for seafood and for the, the like I said, the mystery of all the creatures in the ocean and that connection between people and, and those animals and those plants. And I think that's sort of what brought Ken and I together. And I'll kick it to him for his background, but we bonded over two things, over this shared love of seafood and of, of that connection with the ocean, but also of our shared concern that something was wrong and that we needed to fix it in our small way. Well, I, I was born in uh, Hong Kong, Asia. And um, when I was uh, 15 years old, I moved to Hawaii and I, I just been working. And uh, yeah, something about the ocean that I, I really like to spend time 
I'm not a great swimmer, but sometimes just by the rocks, there's like a calm, like a moment that you can really feel there's life everywhere. And that's the time then when I kind of start learning. I didn't know how to fish. I mean, I would do when I was too. But um, yeah, I always loved fishing by the ocean in Hawaii. For myself, just I, I don't need to catch any fish. Just being around the ocean is really something that I love to do. Around the same time that when I first time tried my sushi experience, first time I ate it, you know, just like, wow, this is, you know, because you know, when I was a kid, I was broke. I never really got a chance to eat sushi. So up until, you know, later age, I was just like, oh, wow, it tastes really good, you know, with seafood and, and sushi rice. And that's kind of how I got into the working different restaurants since I was 16 years old. In San Francisco and Honolulu. Yeah, in Hawaii. And, and, you know, the time that when I moved to San Francisco, you know, I worked a few more different restaurants, sushi restaurants here and there. That's when I actually learned, like, the, the skills, the preparation from learning different masters. It's interesting. Ken and I, we've always worked together. Everything that I've ever done, sushi, you know, we've always worked together. And, uh, when we first met, you know, I was already engaged in ocean conservation professionally. I'd been working with Sea Shepherd. I was on the way to to taking the sustainable seafood gig with Greenpeace, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But I had this love for seafood and sushi from when I was young. And Kin had been working professionally in sushi, but he had developed this love for ocean conservation. Mm. And uh, we were both, we shared values, but we were coming at this this Venn diagram overlapping space from two different angles. So we were able to bring two different skill sets to the table. And we opened Tataki Sushi Bar, February 26th, 2008. And uh, that was our, yeah, 2008. That was our attempt to bring sustainability into the sushi zeitgeist. And uh, that's where the ride began. I mean, you were not exactly kids, but you were really young at that point. We were. We were in our 20s. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing. have any joints that hurt on a daily basis. <laughs> Please. <laughs> I had, I still had hair. I mean, there was, yeah, we were, we were young. We were young, spry individuals back. We had to be. Yeah. That restaurant was a crazy risk. We didn't have any money. We opened it on a shoestring. So when we first opened it, Ken and I and our partner Raymond, we were doing everything. We we eventually got a couple people uh, for front of the house, but it was like a it was a a skeleton crew. The food at Tataki was what we think of as quote unquote normal sushi, or was there were there unusual things about it? Both. Our vision for Tataki was to create a really enjoyable, comprehensive, modern sushi experience, but only relying on sustainable options. And back in 2008, what that meant for us was we were going to take the guidance of the scientists that we respected. And for us, that that was the Monterey Bay Aquarium. They were the king back then. They were the ones developing all of their science. They were the ones that was uncompromised by industry as an independent shop. So, and they were right down the, they were right down the beach from us in in Monterey. Um, And we had good relationships with them. So 
basically that was our business model is, hey, can we can we open a sushi bar that's only using things that the Monterey Bay Aquarium says, yeah, you're good with this. Right. The greens, the ones with the green, the green sticker. Yeah. And it, it prompted a lot of interesting conversations because, you know, they're just as limited as everyone else. They can't review every fishery in the world. Right. And there's a lot of principles around sustainability that we wanted to explore, you know, things like, what if we use something really local? What if we use a, a small fish that comes in that lives in the bay? Monterey doesn't have the, the capacity to create a whole fishery review for this. Does that mean it's unsustainable? So it prompted a lot of interesting conversations. But at the end of the day, Ken and I, our watchword was always, we are not scientists. Part of running a sustainable sushi restaurant was learning how to be humble in the kitchen. And allowing the scientists to tell us, yeah, this is okay or this isn't. And we we didn't always want to listen, but we needed to. They were, that was the whole point. Was a qualification that stuff was local or sustainable could mean global and sustainable? So th that's a really interesting question. We had a lot of different battles to fight coming into this space. The conventional sushi industry is problematic to 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 say it mildly and we can talk about this more if you'd like but the reality is we had a lot of different problems to solve the over exploitation of fisheries how fish were caught how much carbon was used to get them there etc cetera, etc cetera. so we actually had to sort of set up a priority ladder we couldn't hold every problem at the same level of gravity so we had to make some qualitative subjective decisions what we decided to do was we start from the point where we build a menu, and I'm sure Ken remembers this very well. We build yeah. a menu where we are only using yellows <clears throat> and greens from the Monterey Bay Aquarium. We start there, the good alternatives and the best choices. And that is our floor. From that point, we never go down or sideways. We always go up. Our bylaw, our agreement, bylaw sounds formal, it's just three dudes in a kitchen, but you know, our agreement was <laughs> anytime we wanted to put a new fish on, we needed to take something off. And the new fish needed to be better than the old one. It needed to be better in some way. Either it's more local or it's going from a yellow to a green or it's caught in a method with less bycatch, et cetera. Right. So it was, it was sort of a scattershot approach, but our whole idea was we are not going to get this perfect, not now, not ever. The best that we can do is acknowledge that sustainability is a moving target and just always try to make the best decision that we can while at the same time holding a very rigorous floor. I think that's really important because a lot of restaurants could say, yeah, well, we do the best we can, et cetera. That's fine. But unless you have a pretty solid position below which you will not go, it means nothing. Ken, as the chef in those days, was it challenging to have that kind of limitation? Were you like, I mean, I know you were as committed to this as Cassidy was, <laughs> but were you like, come on, let's use whatever? and Or were you like totally down with it? Oh, no, not at all. I totally down, you know. I was totally down with it, you know. For my part, it's just... um the source of getting, you know, which type of fish was just very, very uh, hard. Yeah. This That's was right. a challenge. A lot it of time. Cross uh, off my, my first menu. <laughs> you know, we created a menu, but then, you know, over, over the course, Cassidy just keep like, you know, crossing this and that. And, and we have to 
really just follow the guideline, how to order, where to get it. Uh, that's one challenge. And the second thing is we, we try to cre- be more creative instead of just not working on it at some point. So different fish, we got to find a way to make it um, taste good, to make it unique, to make our, you know, to put our menu together. That was the, the hard part. At the same time, was the most fun part uh, for myself. You know, I like the challenge as well. If every, you know, think about it, if every restaurant is serving the same thing, then, you know, you can basically go anywhere, right? So for me, if, okay, we, we, have a, we have a challenge right here that we're not doing the same thing, but, but how do we be more creative to make this many works? Uh, that was a long, long, long progress, Yeah, which, which was fun. I mean, now I look back, it was, was really fun. <laughs> what was some of the unusual kinds of fish that you were using that people wouldn't have seen in a more conventional sushi restaurant? We're going back to 15 years now, right? Um, I guess, um, I guess one of the, it's the sabo fish. Yeah. Right. Kassim? Yeah. That yeah. was the, that was one of the things because everybody loves unagi. We had we... specific problems <laughs> to solve, right? Sushi, like Mark, you and I have had sushi together before. Like sushi is a story when it's done right it's a journey that it 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 occupies different textures and different flavors and different experiences from start to finish and a good chef is going to really take you on a voyage with those things as you go through that sort of rainbow of experiences our goal was to be able to provide that but a lot of the standard vehicles that a lot of conventional sushi bars would use we didn't allow ourselves, right? You, you want to create that really supple, fatty experience. Well, a lot of sushi bars use bluefin. We're not going to do that. Mm-hmm. You want to create that dark, sweet, sultry experience. A lot of sushi bars use unagi and kabiyaki sauce. We're not going to do that. So because of those limitations, we needed to find a new way to develop that architecture while still being able to tell a comprehensive story of this is the dinner that we're going to share together, right? Mm-hmm. So we had challenges. And Ken's right. One of the big ones was unagi, freshwater eel. Unagi is an ironic reality in the global sushi industry because it's used super commonly in the United States and Europe, et cetera, et cetera, to to deliver this really sweet, flaky experience, usually later in the meal. The irony of it is that it's it's a very threatened species in a very destructive industry. And at the end of the day, you don't really even taste the fish. It's used as a vehicle for this sweet, syrupy sauce. And when we first started Tataki, we, we asked ourselves, why are, why are we doing this? Why would we use an endangered species or a species from such a destructive, antibiotic-laden industry just to deliver this sugar? We can deliver this experience using other methods. But the reality is that Freshwater eel, especially cooked the the sort of classic way in this industry, has a unique textural experience. Mm. So we needed to find a way to deliver something akin to that. 
And uh, we tried a lot of different things. But uh, as Kim mentioned earlier, we ended up using sablefish. We ended up doing a, a, a finding a way to cook sablefish that created this really flaky experience. We were able to use a, a sweet, dark sauce on top of it and deliver something that people found really enjoyable and familiar, but that didn't rely on an unsustainable product. And uh, that recipe really blew up. That recipe was actually one of the things that put Tataki on the map and started getting us press. As the years went by, and I'm not entirely certain of this history in, in terms of the two of you together, but as the years went by, I know you, Kasson, felt more and more like fish just wasn't going to be a part of the picture, that there was sort of, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I have the impression that you started to feel as if there's no such thing as sustainable sushi or no such thing as sustainable fish. As we spent time in the industry, not only were we learning, but the world was changing. And things, people were trying different things and, and some were working and some weren't. And we were watching, you know, hey, we've got more restaurants doing the sustainable thing. Are the stock levels coming back? Well, in a lot of cases, it didn't seem like it. Mm -hmm. And Ken and I, you know, we were always a mission-driven partnership. Our focus we, wasn't to have a restaurant for the sake of having a restaurant. That That's crazy. Uh, our focus was to have a restaurant because we wanted to be a part of the kind of world that we believed in. And again, you know, we were united largely by values. And so eventually we had opened a few more branches of Tataki. We had brought on a couple more partners. You know, we fast forward to about 2014 now. And uh, we had always had two watchwords, sort of our, our mantra for a restaurant, which was eat better fish, eat fewer fish. That was it. You know, we, we should be having sushi less. And when we do it, we should be eating better fish and making a bigger celebration of it. It should be a, a bigger deal. This It's this, I'm having sushi four times a week for this sort of ersatz nine-piece sushi lunch. That, that's the real problem. That's what's causing all the damage. So we always thought this eat better fish, eat fewer fish was the way to success. But we had to be honest with ourselves that we were only doing half the work. We were doing a pretty good job with Eat Better Fish. We really felt that Tataki and, and the other restaurants that we had opened were offering really solid, sustainable sushi solutions in terms of seafood. We weren't doing that good of a job with Eat Fewer Fish. We had some vegetarian items on our menu. We thought they were pretty good. Nobody ever ordered them. And the reality is it just wasn't, it wasn't gonna work. So Ken and I... We just got together one day and we said, you know, we had just signed, we had just gotten a, um, the opportunity to take over a new space. Yeah, a new space in the North Mission in San Francisco. We were really excited about it. It was slated to be another Tataki. And we sat down and said, you know what? What if we don't open another Tataki? What if we open a fully vegan sushi bar? What if we just be real honest and lean into this eat fewer fish piece? and create options that people of all stripes, omnivores, vegans, vegetarians, everyone can enjoy together with a light footprint. We didn't feel an counter to our mission. We felt that it was the next natural step. We'll be right back with Ken Liu, Kasson Trenner, and me. 
Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Can we talk a little bit about what sushi means, where sushi comes from? This history is really an interesting key to the future of enjoying sushi in a way. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought this up. This is another thing that Ken and I always tried to come back to is this idea, we're not inventing anything. We didn't come up with sustainability in sushi. That was always the point. And it's something that's been lost. So sushi, the word, 
In Japanese, sushi means vinegared rice. That is what that word means. There is nothing about fish in the context of that word specifically. But who cares? We have lots of words like that in English too. That <laughs> you break like, yeah, maybe it's not about something, but it, it's become about that. And I acknowledge that. But I think it's important to recognize the roots of the cuisine because it's only with that information that we can understand a how we got to this problematic place and b how actually the cuisine itself we believe Ken and I at least can help us solve this problem to keep the art of sushi alive and also make the ocean a healthier place so sushi arose really as a response to a problem and the problem was that Japanese communities in certain areas of southern Japan didn't really have access to good storage or refrigeration technology. This was a problem because they had, like many other places in the world, a seasonal variation in the availability of protein. This is a problem all over the world. And in this specific case of Japan, a lot of it had to do with certain species of, of fish that would arrive in very large quantities during some portions of the year and then just not be present at other times. So there were ideas of, well, how can we keep this bounty for leaner times of the year? And also, how can we get it to other parts of the country that don't have access to this protein when we don't have refrigeration? And we don't have ice and we don't have all those things like that to keep it safe. A lot of these fish, you know, very common fish, things like, like skipjack tuna and bonito, things that formed the, the cornerstones of a lot of, of sushi cuisine and the, the recipes and the flavor profiles, they didn't freeze well. They didn't transport well. They didn't, it was difficult to, to get them from place to place. So these problems had to be solved. One of the ways that this problem was solved was some of these fish would be packed in an airtight container. And the best way to create an airtight container was to cook rice, pack the fish in this rice, and then press it in boxes to get all the air out of it. Whoa. That would keep the air away from the meat of the fish. Then they could take it from the beach up into the mountains to Kyoto or wherever it was going and serve it. And it would have a longer chance to get there. But that wasn't good enough by itself. The reality is it wasn't a perfect method. So the Japanese merchants needed to develop a way to help the consumer be even more safeguarded against any potential problems. Again, no refrigeration. So if they couldn't prevent all of the bacterial growth on the fish, the next best thing they could do was forewarn and forearm the consumer to be better prepared to eat the fish. So they began to serve and present condiments that would actually make their consumers, the people that were going to eat the fish, more impervious to any potential bacteria that might be there. So they wanted to get their digestion really fired up. And what did they use? They used garlic and they used horseradish. And that's why we now have sushi coming out of this idea of this combination of sushi vinegared rice, which is how we created this packed space to get the oxygen out. The fish or whatever was being transported, it happened to be fish in this case, but as you said, Mark, it doesn't have to be. And then wasabi and ginger is this idea of 
let's make sure that this is going to be as safe as possible to eat since we didn't refrigerate it. And fast forward 100 years, and we have a global cuisine based on these flavor profiles. It's a great story. And there's there's two things about it that are notable from my perspective. One is that when you go to a sushi restaurant where they really know what they're doing, the rice is kind of the best part anyway, and everybody knows that. And then the second thing is three quarters of culinary history is figuring out how to find some protein to combine with your grains because grains are the backbone of human diet. All The majority of calories still come from grains, whether they're ultra-processed or whole. That's still, that's where most calories come from. And then, of course, the most important source of protein is, is legumes, but still, for a billion people, fish is the most important source of protein. So, and a lot of that remains wild. So let's go back to the conversation the two of you had about Here's a thought. <laughs> Let's be true to the roots of sushi and talk, go back to the rice and whatever it is that you have to make it taste different. So I can almost draw this connection, but that we're missing one piece, which is that I've only talked about really one of the of the sort of traditions of sushi that we were looking at. And that's this idea of how do we where it came from. You know, what's really just about the rice. It's really about doing the best we can with that. But the other piece is about really honesty. Sushi is about being honest about what's available and then doing your very best to make it the best thing that it can be. A lot of the things that we now see in the sushi industry, these quote unquote sushi fish, they're there because those were what were available in the bay in front of Tokyo back in the day when this was happening. Mm-hmm. But the reality is that's no longer the answer to the question, what do we have access to and what's the best that we can do? So with Ken and I, when we were thinking about this new concept, we asked ourselves, hey, what's really the best that we can do right now? What do we have access to? And the answer were plants. Plants was what we had access to. So again, we didn't invent anything. We're just looking back at the principles of sushi do the best you can with what you have access to where and when you are and try to make it help and serve as many people as possible. And actually it takes more time to work with vegetables at some point because everything has to be very detailed. For example, marinated tomato, let's just say the tomato, the ripeness of the tomato has to be kind of perfect. And the way how we prepare it, the way how we kind of marinate Timing-wise, has to be kind of exact, like right there. And some of the vegetables, we even age for a day that actually tastes better than the first day. Hmm. So it's kind of sort of like uh, when you when you have tuna, you know, you first, you know, a lot of sushi chefs know about it. You know, fresh tuna, better filet, you know, bring to the restaurant. You don't actually serve the first day. You actually age in the refrigerator. So like a few days, let the meat kind of change the kind of texture that how, however you want to serve your customers. Um, Firms up a little bit as it ages it. Yeah. It's interesting. Like we really do. We look back at that part of our, our education and we apply that as much as we can to plants. And obviously plants are completely different organisms than animals. 
they're not made of the same building blocks, but at the same time, it's surprising to see the overlaps uh, in terms of how we can how we can approach them to create and coax out those levels of umami and those levels of complexity that we want to get from vegetables and mushrooms and and pickles and and fruit. Uh, it, it's really interesting. We've learned a lot. Can you think of some breakthroughs or some interesting examples of stuff that you were doing back when you were figuring this out? That was a lot. <laughs> uh, I remember when we figured out how to make vegan ramen broth that had oh. the level of richness that we were trying to create. Without putting and polar bears in it. Without putting polar bears <laughs> in it. Um, and that was a big day. We were, I mean, you can get vegan ramen in a lot of places now, and that's wonderful. But when we were first starting, it, it was very rare. Um, and the ones that you could get, they just weren't, they weren't an acceptable facsimile of what people really wanted. It was, it was yet another example of, oh, you can either bring your principles to the restaurant or you can get good food, right? And that's just not an acceptable dilemma. That's not a choice that people that are trying to live in a different way, trying to have a lighter footprint or have health restrictions, people for whatever reason that have a vegan diet, they should not have to compromise on the quality of what they eat just to do the right thing. And we have always tried to bear that in mind. It's never been good enough for us unless it was going to be good enough for everybody. The idea of like, oh, we can eat here. It's it's not great, but it's vegan. That's not the restaurant we set out to build. Right. I mean, just to be completely clear, it's almost coincidentally vegan sushi and the target audience is not vegans. Not that there's a reason for vegans not to eat there, but it's coincidentally a vegan restaurant. It's coincidentally a vegan restaurant. That's exactly right. We did not set out to serve vegan food to vegans. We love serving vegan food to vegans. <laughs> right. Great. And our vegan communities in the cities that we have restaurants are really the reasons that we've succeeded and we are so grateful. But the reality is we don't change the world by serving vegan food to vegans. We change the world by serving vegan food to omnivores. Right. <laughs> That's what we set out to do. Yeah. That's a noble goal. So tell me what's happening now. Ken, you're in Honolulu. You're running a restaurant. Kasson, I actually don't know what you're doing. <laughs> I don't either. <laughs> we get, I mean, the concept I, remains. The idea the concept, remains. The, the concept remains. The business grows. Uh, we are in the process of looking at a few different cities for our next location, which would be our, our fifth restaurant. And uh, we're, we're always excited about these kinds of things because new locations bring new ideas. They bring new access to different agricultural spaces, new foraged ingredients, new wild ingredients, et cetera, et cetera. Our business model is always to have our menus about maybe 70% the same, you know, drawing on a lot of the, the traditional Japanese flavors and, and, and those kinds of things that we've been able to create in our own way and then have them about 30% unique. So every restaurant is different. Every restaurant has its own homage to where it is and who is cooking because that's a big part of sustainability is to not try to do the same thing everywhere all over the world because that's that's not the way the world works. Right. 
can talk about your restaurant? It's called Tane, T-A-N-E. You know, in Japanese, um, translated means a seed. You know, after living in the Bay Area for like 13 years, and took us four years to decide um, moving back home to Hawaii. And how are things going? The thing's been going great. You know, I mean, it's kind of sort of like the same kind of thing that, you know, I expected as well. I, I opened Tani, kind of, it was like the first vegan sushi pine in uh, in Oahu. In Hawaii culture, fish, it's like the biggest thing on the island. For myself to take that risk to open a vegan sushi bar, it's just, it's a different level than in, in Bay Area. But I believe stuff that we, we all create, I could bring it back home here and, and share with everyone that walks into that door. It has been a lot of supporters. First was the vegan community, which I can say, you know, thank you for them. And second, almost the, the locals, you know, our neighbors, they actually, they're not vegan. They're, they're willing to give it a, a try. And most of them, they, they, they really like what, what we do. And, and I'm very thankful for that. And they became regulars. And also, there's visitors from all over the world that, you know, would come in with suitcase that they just got off the plane and they just want to eat here. Or they make a reservation like months or weeks ahead of time when they visit Honolulu. And uh, I'm very, very thankful of, you know, the journey of the restaurant and I'm very thankful for everyone that has been supporting the, the restaurants. That's great. Kasson, I need to hear what you're doing and I need for you both to talk a little bit about what you think, if there are future plans together or separately. I'm crazy enough to be involved in restaurants, but I'm not crazy enough to be involved in restaurants alone. It, we we started this journey together. I don't have any desire to go off anywhere else. Ken, Ken is the reason that all of this works. I'm just the guy that talks a lot and comes mm -hmm. up with ideas, most of which are crazy. So from my perspective, if and as we continue, it will be as a team. And uh, I think we have a lot of interesting stuff coming up. We're always thinking about new locations and this world of of plant-based creativity it's just like back in 2008 when we first started looking at the the gaps left in a conventional sushi menu when you take off all the unsustainable stuff it's not about saying oh we can only serve these few things it's about look at all the opportunity we have to be creative and this is just that again but it's in a new space well i'm certainly going to wish you luck it's such a noble project and such a smart project. And in some ways, I think the way of the future, you know, I've always been supportive of it. So I'm glad we had the opportunity to talk about it. Thank you. Th thanks for inviting us Thank on you. and for all your support over the years. Yeah, I, I don't know. I can't predict the future, but I do think that the world is changing and the, the more that we can get ahead of it, the better, you know, for, for all sorts of reasons. Yeah, makes perfect sense. All right, take care, guys. Thanks again. All right. Bye. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, bye. Thank you to Kasson and Kin for joining me. This was an episode that I'd wanted to do for a while, and I think it paid off. I hope you do, too. You can follow Shizen on Instagram and Facebook at ShizenSF, S-H-I-Z-E-N-S-F. Follow Casson on Twitter at Casson Trenner, C-A-S-S-O-N, 
T-R-E-N-O-R. Follow me at Bitman or at Mark Bitman on Instagram. Please follow the podcast. Follow everything. Follow the Bitman Project. That's bitmanproject.com. And thank you for joining us. Join us again next week when we will have somebody awesome. All right. Take care in the meantime. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.